Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to Smart Remarks, Howard States. I'm Doug Howard. Today is August 5th, 2020, and with me today is Dr. Christian Smart. Christian and I are going to talk about likelihood versus consequence, restaurant mathematics, and the number 42. Christian, welcome. Thanks, Doug. Good to talk to you. Yes, uh, likelihood versus consequence. Now, this is your your wheelhouse here, Christian. Um, I guess the whole world saw what can happen as a consequence uh, yesterday in Beirut. Um, for those of us, for those of them uh, of our listeners that are joining, sometime much later than when we recorded this, why don't you give a brief summary as how you saw what happened yesterday from your standpoint as a an observer and a mathematician. Yeah, so it's one of those things where uh, it's probably an accident waiting to happen, but um, you know, even though the, the likelihood may not have been that high, depending on what risk they were taking, the consequence was pretty big. And so that's what happens when you, sometimes when you uh, uh, ignore uh, consequence and just focus on the likelihood. I mean, even if the likelihood was 5%, um, you know, this huge, caused huge destruction in the city and killed a lot of people and, and injured a lot of people. So it's uh, almost like a, a terrorist attack on themselves, you know, in a way, but, the, just, but it's accidental. So it's uh, really bad. You you really need to focus on, on consequences as a society. We're much more focused, and I think it's innate human bias that we want to be right. We need to be right. And that is associated with the likelihood of occurrence of an event. And But there's another key part of probability that's even more important, and that's consequence. You know, what is the consequence that happens when something bad does happen. Is it is it pretty small? You know, you stub your toe or you blow off your foot or, or you kill yourself, you know, when you do something bad. And so uh, we need to pay attention to that too. You know, if you uh, think about the deadly game of Russian roulette uh, involves uh, taking, uh, putting a bullet into a revolver, spinning the chamber and then pointing the gun at your head and then pulling the trigger, there's, uh, you know, one in six chance of uh, killing yourself. Most of the time, you'll turn out just fine, five out of six times. That's more than 80%. Um, people that, when they analyze risk, a lot of times they consider anything 80% or above. I've seen this on some risk matrices. Anything that's 80% above is almost certain. Uh, but, but what you ignore is, you know, the consequence right. of those bad events when they do happen. Um, the mathematician Blaise Pascal um, cast it as a wager. You know, he looked at, you know, and he, he was a, also a very religious man, and he knew a lot of he knew a lot of gamblers. He actually had worked with gamblers, and and they spurred him to develop probability theory. And um, you know, he 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 cast this wager as a, a bet. You know, on, on your belief in God, do you believe in God or not? Well, what are the consequences if you believe in God? Um, well, if if you believe in God and He doesn't exist, no harm. If He does exist, great benefit. If if you don't believe in God and he doesn't exist, no harm. But if you don't believe in God and he does exist, that's bad, right? So, oh, yeah. um, so that, you know, the, the consequence, even if you think the likelihood is very low that, that God exists, you should, you should bet on God in, in, in Pascal's terms uh, because of the consequence. And so right. you know, the, um, it's one of the things I talk about in my forthcoming book is, you know, we, we tend to focus more on the likelihood than the consequence. I was giving a, a presentation on risk and uh, talking about the extreme amounts of cost growth that occur, which 
is a result of risks that have been realized. And one people in the audience who's a program manager said, well, most of the time we get it right. You know, <laughs> you know, usually within 30%, you know, the median is 30% right. growth. Uh, and, and, and so most of the time we get it right. Well, I wouldn't, first of all, I wouldn't consider 30% growth on something like a billion dollar program to be getting it right. But, <laughs> but really what that's ignoring is those extreme events. And so if you look at the extreme events and the extreme events in my mind are for a project anytime cost doubles or more from the initial plan. Right. Um, that occurs roughly one out of six times, kind of like a, a project Russian roulette. Right. So uh, that's, that's where it's really bad. It's really kind of a little bit hard to wrap our heads around um, you know, it's human, human bias to really wrap our heads around how much consequence that infers in terms of the amount of risk there is. And there's a lot of risk that's out there. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, this, this, this thing, this blast again in Beirut was the result of first we heard per, poorly stored fireworks and now they're kind of copying to the fact that they had ammonium nitrate stored poorly there, which doesn't take too much to ignite as we saw yesterday. And you know they're they're paying a, a paying for it with a massive consequence. I, as it happens in my my youth, I actually worked a summer at a at a dynamite factory. And a dynamite factory is a, a place in which the you you've got likelihood versus consequence as a overarching theme at the uh, at the factory all the all the while. So one thing you'll you'll find about dynamite factories is. Uh, they don't like dynamite factories in areas that have lightning. Now, what are the chances you're going to get struck by lightning? Well, they, they'll tell you that it's like your chances of winning the lottery. Very, very thin. Well, the dynamite manufacturers know that, that it's very thin. You get any, hit in any one place. But knowing that, what they do is they take their dynamite factories and they put them in places in which they have very little lightning. So you, you'll find in the United States, the, the dynamite factories were by and large located in places in which there were very few lightning storms. And one of those places is, uh, interestingly enough, only by coincidence, is about a mile from where I am right now. It's been since turned down. I'm in Southern California, 25 miles north west of Los Angeles. There used to be a dynamite factory right down the street. And previously, I uh, worked at one in the town of DuPont, Washington. When I was when I was only nineteen, and the what they do at a at a dynamite factory is you know Christian and I both worked in defense, and the one thing they don't like at the at defense plants uh, they used to they used to hate the cell phones because they didn't want to have any any people taking pictures. They hate cameras at defense plants. Well, just as much as they hate cameras at defense plants. What they hate at dynamite factories are, are matches and lighters and sparks. And so when you come into a dynamite factory, you, you are told to wear spark-free clothing because one spark could set off a, an explosion. And so when you come into the uh, gate of a dynamite factory, you're, you're told to remove all your smoking products and uh, then go about your way. Uh, interestingly, in this one particular plant, Back in the 30s, the story was told from the uh, the people that worked there that they had had a chain reaction and they lost uh, eight people. And so then, uh, getting back to the, uh, the 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 probability of getting 
another chain reaction, Christian, what they did was they then made their own little narrow gauge railroad on this facility, which was uh, something on the order of several square miles. They made their own narrow gauge railroad and they would store the explosives and magazines that were separated from other magazines by, by both distance and they had um, earthen berms around the magazines and then very thick steel doors in front of the magazines. But they had, they had lost people as a consequence of that. And uh, interestingly enough, the guy that I worked with, and again, being just a, you know, this is a part-time job during the middle of the university. Uh, the guy I was working with was the tester for the dynamite. And, and we would test the dynamite. And you might ask, well, how do you test dynamite? Well, carefully, of course. But uh, what they do is actually it's liquid explosive. You would, we would pour the liquid explosive in a tube. And they would have a couple of um, holes on the side of the tube where they would have sensors put in. And then they would put in the, uh, the primer cord and the detonator at, at one end of the sausage. It was basically a sausage wrapped up with a detonator around the end that was tied off. And then they would measure the speed of the explosive with these two lines that were wired to the uh, explosive. And uh, the guy I worked with would uh, routinely, uh, he was a smoker and um, he didn't want to be caught in the lab smoking. So he, he went to the one place that he thought would be the best place to go to not get caught when he was smoking, which was the uh, the place where they kept all the detonators. And uh, talk about likelihood versus consequence. He, he got away with it when I was there, but uh, imagine what would have happened if, right, uh, Christian? If right, one right. Park. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that is, uh, that's really tragic. And we, we just don't seem to learn from things like that. No, unfortunately, we don't. Yeah, but if we get by with it, then we think, oh, it's okay. And even even though we don't uh, appreciate the fact that we were lucky, right? Right. And and the one thing that they didn't do in Beirut that they at least did back in Dupont after they had the problem, I think that explosion happened in the '30s, is they, much like somebody playing the stock market, they spread their risk. They didn't have all of their explosives in one place. They didn't have all their, in, in the stock market, they didn't have all their dollars on one stock, one equity. What they did was they, they dispersed it across a very large area and then, you know, created protection so that one piece wouldn't blow up the other. And uh, I, what apparently didn't happen in Beirut was that they didn't think to put up other facilities that could have stored this as we discovered just yesterday, they're very unstable explosives all over the place. And they, some people paid for it with their lives. So. Yeah. They, I mean, they got by with it for a while, but they, um, they probably, you know, it hadn't caused a problem to date. The longer it went on, the longer it hadn't caused a problem, the, the more confident they began, they became like the, you know, it's kind of like the, the Turkey, you know, the, the, the turkeys, his well-being, his weight's gaining, and he's ha very happy, and this farmer keeps feeding him right up until right. he gets slaughtered right before Thanksgiving, right? And then things right. really go to go downhill very quickly. So just because uh, things have not caused a problem doesn't mean that they're not going to, yeah. So, you, you know, looking at risk, you have to be forward-looking. You can't just say, oh, well, we've just been stored there for years, hasn't caused a problem yet. Um, right. Yeah, so you got to, uh, you got to, Think about what bad, what what could something bad that could happen, right? Just 
just like we didn't think there would be this um, pandemic. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and it turns out here in the United States, I, I, you know, I did some reading this morning here. There was a, there was a blast much like the one we saw in Beirut in Texas city back in 1947. Uh, they killed 400 people with it and knocked down a thousand buildings. And that explosion was uh, 2,300 U.S. tons. So that is about one-fifth the size of the bomb that uh, landed on Hiroshima. So just to give you a, a, a comparison there. And so that was, again, poorly stored ammonium nitrate. And so it looks like here in the United States, we, we at least learned that lesson, lesson partially. But um, this looking at explosives, but, you know, we didn't really learn our lessons, I don't think, too well for COVID because there's the the likelihood and consequence of, of not planning for a pandemic, right, Christian? I think we're seeing that again right now. I, I'm, our state is kind of stable. Your state's been kind of skying with, uh, with cases recently, hasn't it? Yes. Um, like local, well, the local county here, there's no statewide mass mandate, Tennessee. Um, I wasn't glad to see the governor of Mississippi uh, finally issued a statewide mass mandate. Uh, cases are really exploding there. Uh, in Tennessee in July, um, there was a, a doubling in the number of deaths in July compared wow. to, to June. And even though testing increased quite a bit, um, the number of cases grew by even larger amounts. So, um, yeah, so uh, Alabama and Mississippi both now have uh, state mask mandates. Arkansas has one they instituted last month. Uh, but Georgia, the governor never refuses to. He's actually sued the mayor of Atlanta. Several of the big cities in, in Georgia have instituted mass mandates. Uh, Savannah, uh, Atlanta, um, Augusta, I think, they've all instituted mass mandates. And as a result, they, um, they did not see a, a huge increase in the number of deaths in, uh, in July. Uh, but but the, uh, the governor of Georgia refuses to issue a mass mandate and is actually suing the mayor of Atlanta for issuing one. So, um, oh boy. and Florida, you know, the governor there refuses to do anything. Um, and, uh, they, you know, they've had a, a huge outbreak that's been in the news. Um, the, uh, South Carolina though, uh, also does not have a mass mandate. They have, uh, they had a huge increase. They have actually, actually a larger increase in the number of deaths on a percentage basis from June to July than Florida did. Like like a three hundred percent increase. Wow. So uh so it's pretty bad. North Carolina has a mass mandate, they're doing pretty well. Uh Kentucky has one, they're they're doing fairly well. But yeah, though so so uh so getting a little late in the game to start doing these things, but it's um yeah, so it's uh, it's kinda it's pretty it's not, not not doing too great. Uh and actually we know um my wife and I have a friend who is uh, in the hospital right now with uh, with mm. COVID. Not oh, in the ICU. He's doing fairly well. He's on oxygen. He's 79. He's in good health. He's 79 years old. Um, so this is early August and he's been in the hospital for a few days now. So we talked to him yesterday on the phone, you know, he can't go see people, but we talked to him on the phone yesterday. We're going to call him again today. So, um, so yeah, so it's uh, pretty scary. We also know uh, we, we have some friends that went to Florida in early July, came back all sick with COVID. Uh, oh most of them recovered, but a couple of them, um, it's, it's their family and their extended family went and a couple of them who have health issues. One uh, was having lung problems. 
another one uh, is uh, being treated for cancer. Oh, They're both no. in the ICU now. So, um, yeah, so it's pretty, it's pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. And you wrote about this in a recent post about the, um, when you talk about testing, I mean, some people had blamed the number of cases on the increased testing, but you, you disproved that, didn't you? Yes. So um, if I look to the Southeast, basically it's Virginia, uh, North Carolina, basically the entire Southeast. I didn't include Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, but pretty much the entire Southeast. So 11 states. Um, in every state, the number, even though testing expanded in every state, the number of cases grew by an even greater percentage in every, in every state, um, you know, from a relatively small increase to a much larger increase. Um, case in point is Arkansas, which only had a 6% increase in testing, but a 61% increase in cases. Oh boy. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, all, all of these states have had, um, uh, increasing cases they all had an increase in deaths in july from june so um yeah so so yeah so this it's not just the increase in tests it's there's also an increase in cases above and beyond the increase in tests so if, you know if, if tests doubled and cases doubled well that's okay you know it's just make be a function of of uh of testing but you know when, when tests double and then cases quadruple that's the you know sign that that cases are growing at a faster rate than testing. So, um, yeah, so that, 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 that gives that, uh, the data, you know, don't support the, uh, claim that it's just due to increased testing. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's lost on a few people. So I, I, that's kind of a sad fact with that. Um, so, um, are you able to go out to restaurants now? Yes. In yeah, so we uh, we do occasionally go to a restaurant. We, um, you know, we, we try to uh, we, we to wear masks. So we wear a mask in, take our mask off the table. The places we go, there all the wait staff are wearing masks. So we we go every once in a while. Um, so yeah, so you 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 do the same out there, right? You have some restaurants that that you got, you and your wife go out to occasionally. Yeah, and and, and we we just started to think about, or at least I did, about restaurant restaurant math in the in the time of covid so what what do i mean by that well my wife and i have two restaurants that we frequent fairly regularly and uh, one we go to about every friday and one we go to a couple times a month and so the one that we go to every friday um they had they had indoor seating for about i don't know must have been close to 80 or 100 people so then they of course like everybody else here in this state they they switched to outdoor seating and they were limited then to, I think they had five or six tables that, that held five or six people. And what I noticed was in, in this particular restaurant slash sports bar is that you would, we'd have some of the regulars come by and they're just single men and women and they come out and they would pick up on a, on a table and they would take the whole table and then the, the whole restaurant would back up with one person at a five person table. And then I looked at the seating, of course, you've got to have separation between the tables and that's, that's the number of tables they thought they could get out there. And I said, well, look, what you ought to do is you could get some two seat tables over here and over here. And if you did that, then you could seat the, the people that are coming in ones and two, one and two at a time 
there so that you get the people with the, the, at the uh, larger tables when they, came, when they were ready to come in and they, when they came in. And so, um, so they did it. Uh, I, I went to the restaurant two weeks ago and they implemented my suggestion. And as I would have predicted based on my having frequented this restaurant over the many months that we've been going there, years now, uh, they started to have these two, these four two-seat tables fill up and then enabling larger parties to come and fill up their tables of four, five, and six. And so I've, I've asked the manager to, to check the receipts for, you know, a period of time before they implemented the change and then after to see if we could actually quantify the difference. Uh, it's, it seems to me like that would have been pretty easy to figure out, but unless you actually implement it, you can't see it. And that that's, you've probably seen that a lot in, in your field, Christian. I mean, you give somebody a suggestion, sometimes it's implemented and sometimes it isn't. So um, can you give an example of someplace where you, you implemented something like this and, and you saw some good results? Wouldn't be necessarily a restaurant, but you know, just an implementation. Yeah, so well, I will say, uh, you know, something that NASA did uh, several years ago was looking at doing risk analysis on both cost and schedule jointly. Mm. And um, there's no evidence that it completely gets rid of cost growth. But but I, I will say that um, I probably my most accurate estimate ever was for a $500 million Martian mission. Wow. And I did a joint cost and schedule analysis, I think, maybe as a function of that. And maybe the project paying attention to that, there was zero percent cost growth and there was zero percent schedule growth. And my wow. estimate estimate came in right at the fiftieth percentile for both cost and schedule. So um, you know, paying attention to risk can can pay off. That's probably my, my most uh, accurate estimate. And NASA doing that, I think I think it does help a little bit. They still have quite a few missions uh that have cost growth for a variety of reasons. And uh um so that that's uh that's one uh, that's one example though. So. Well, getting back to the restaurants, I mean, as I told you, there were there are two that we go to, and and so this other one we go to has more outdoor seating. Uh, they've got seating for I don't know, at least double what the other place does, and a number of those seats are are picnic tables. And so the the owner has decided that because he's got these picnic tables that can hold up to eight people, that he doesn't want to have parties less than five seated. You know, if uh, if he's got a table, these tables open, and so we get to these odd situations in which we were there just last week. He uh, and it was just the wife and myself, and so we're a party of two, and they don't want to seat us. And there's only 15 minutes before they're going to stop seating anybody. And I I look around to the patio where we're going to be seated if we get us if we get a table, and there are five open picnic tables. And I'm thinking to myself, well, the probability that this guy is going to have five parties of five show up in the next 15 minutes is probably pretty low. But he's he's essentially betting that that's going to happen and putting off the parties of two for the parties of five that may or may not show up. And so uh, it would be my suggestion to him, and I've tried to suggest it to his some other people that work there. I don't know if it's managed to get its way up to the management yet, but it's my suggestion that you would write down how many people you have per day coming. Every time you have a table, mark down how many people showed up. Give it the uh, 
the time of day, the number of the party, and the, the day of the week. And I'm guessing you would start to see a trend develop. You know, you, you have a, a you know, peak peak flow on the on the weekends or Friday nights and you know lower amounts during the week. But you could probably plan for that, plan for that, and then make adjustments to how your your seating effectively you have a seating algorithm that you're, you've created. You can make adjustments to the algorithm on the fly. But they're not doing that. So um, we, we finally got into this restaurant only because the place was about to close. And there were, you know, again, this, there were five tables open when we got our seat. I, uh, I just found it kind of astonishing that somebody wouldn't, wouldn't listen to that, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's too bad. I mean, that's kind of advice. I mean, especially now with, with uh, business struggling, it's kind of make the difference between make or break. We, um, yeah, it's kind of, we've, we've uh, known some people that own a local restaurant here, one of our favorite places to eat. And they, um, they really kind of, when things were shut down, they really went out of their way to do, uh, they have a food truck. They did a lot of, uh, you know, they would announce in social media where they were going to be and, um, you can go get food and, and it was kind of a one at a time. You had to order ahead of time and basically just kind of a way to pick up kind of near your neighborhood and they've done a lot of delivery and a lot of catering and that kind of thing. So they've um, managed to, to be successful even despite the pandemic. So that was good because I know some other local places or even some franchises have shut down, you know, just because of the, it doesn't work with their business model anymore. You know, there's, right buffet type places or places where um, one place we used to like to go around once a week, kind of a guilty pleasure is it's called uncle buds. And you mm -hmm. could uh, basically, you know, like all you could eat, like you'd go on Sunday and it was like all you could eat chicken, you know, either fried chicken mm -hmm. or chicken tenders. And they would constantly bring out, you know, bowls of beans and onions and pickles and French fries. And, you know, it was kind of a, Way to really get filled up, but this you know, that really doesn't work that well in the you know the, the current state. So they they just completely shut down here. Yeah, it's really. Uh, I mean, these times are hard for so many people. It's uh, it's, but the the thing of it is, is that sometimes there's ways to rearrange the businesses. Like I was talking about this this one restaurant that did, and the other one that didn't. There are ways to rearrange the these enterprises and ways in which that could make the business at least stave off bankruptcy while we go through the epidemic and so they come out the other side in one piece. I know that's going to be a, an issue for a lot of different firms. You know, it's interesting to me, I, um, you know, the car rental business is, is completely bottomed out, but the RV industry, RV rental industry is is taken off. People are doing little mini vacations in RVs now. Mm, so yeah. the, the rental cars that they used to rent at the at the um, when they would go on vacation or business trips aren't being used, but the RVs are. So it's uh, it's been turned into a it's it's turning into a very interesting and, and difficult time to try to figure out what to do in the market, any market that you work in. Yes, it uh, definitely is a challenge for some people, and then a um, great opportunities for others. I know. Uh, Jeff Bezos has gotten a lot richer because people are ordering more stuff sent to their house. So, um, yes, 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 yes. Uh, you know, it's good, uh, the economist, Joseph, uh, Schumpeter, 
what it called creative creative destruction, right? Something happens, causes some destruction, but then out of the ashes of that, a new phoenix arises, to, uh, new opportunities, new new things that may uh, hasten. You know, I mean, there's already some move towards telework because we're now able, right. most people are able to work from home. We're not, you know, building a house or uh, cutting grass. Most of us are not. Uh, so, you know, we can, um, those of us that are knowledge workers can work completely remotely. Um, I know that, uh, you know, these uh, teleconference companies are doing very well. So um, like Zoom. And uh, right. yeah. so there's uh, new opportunities for things. And then it hastens the speed towards um, um, more telework. And that can be for bigger cities, could be less congestion, less people on the roads during rush hour. So uh, there could be some long-term benefits from that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There's, you talk about un unanticipated consequences. So there were fewer, there, there had been fewer people on the road out here in Los Angeles, uh, for those of you who haven't been out here, we have um, traffic that you could uh, characterize at its worst as legendary. Um, it could take it could take from our house, which is about 36 miles to LAX, LAX. If you leave in normal times at 4 a.m. for the airport, you can get there in 40 minutes. But if you leave during one of the rush hours, it can take you two and a half hours to get down there. And one of the things that they've discovered that wow. happened, and I'm not sure if it's as prevalent now because there's a few more cars out on the road, but as the traffic got knocked down by, at one point, over half, maybe by two-thirds in the county, they started to get much, many more speeding tickets. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, several people going over 100. One guy was clocked doing 150 locally. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've seen, I saw some pictures of the San Diego freeway, you know, that big, you know, kind of goes right through Los Angeles and no, see no cars on it is very uh, surprising. Yeah. The, At times, it, yeah. That is, that freeway holds the, or occasionally holds the record as being the most congested freeway, at least in the United States and uh, perhaps the world. It's, uh, that's the one I was talking about that we take to go down to, Los Angeles International, that thing can be completely congested at times, and it's crazy bad. But, um, you know, if we start doing more telework, now the other thing that's going to happen then is the office rentals ought to start to, to uh, the, the, the price for office space ought to start dropping off, I would think. Right. So this, I guess there should be some equilibrium balance between, because companies also save money by not having an office. So... Um, at some point, I guess the price will settle down low enough that people want to go back, you know, the companies will want to go back to the office and have people in the office more. I don't know, but you know, that that's one of the things that, you know, DOD, the department of defense has been very resistant to telework. And, uh, I know that my uh, former colleagues, at the missile defense agency, they've all been working from home unless they have to go in for a classified meeting on a classified, uh, telephone call or a video conference. Cause you can't do that. Right outside of outside of a secure facility, but um, most of them are working from home, and they're the uh, senior executives, most of which are in the Northern Virginia area. Um, they're really enjoying not having to, you know, fight the traffic and to work every day and and back home. So um, they're they're actually beginning to realize, hey, we actually can work from home. So uh, whereas before it was it was very limited, and you had to 
be very specific about when you teleworked and get get permission. Sure. That kind of thing. Yeah. So, so uh, that should that should help with their productivity as well a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it'll be interesting to see how we can measure productivity going forward. I, I know. You know, my wife teaches, and she she went up to school today, but she she was teaching the whole last part of the year teaching from home. So um, teaching from home is fraught with uh, some difficulties, but there's, you know, there's a plus side to it. You don't have the, the commute each way. And that's, that's been a big benefit to her. So, so now your, your wife, your, your wife, um, she's an attorney, right? She's an attorney. And so uh, she did a lot of work in insurance for a long time. Um, and then um, when we got married in uh, 17 and then uh, our son came along uh, about a year later, um, he, she uh, took three months off from work and then she went back to the office. But we live in kind of what you might call, and you know, not, not just the suburbs of Nashville, but like the exurbs, you know, we live in the county adjacent to Nashville. Oh, right, so she right, was right. kind of commuting back and forth to East Nashville every day from where we live. Uh -huh. in a town called Murfreesboro and um and it was about a, a 35 40 minute commute but then it's just getting over time it's getting longer and longer commute because it's just Nashville is really booming mm -hmm. and um in, in a lot of ways and especially in the, the the healthcare it's very big in healthcare industries and a lot of uh, technology companies are moving in the area too uh, many technology companies like Silicon Valley companies are having their eastern headquarters in the Nashville area. So um, it's really booming. Amazon has a pretty big presence that's growing. Um, but anyway, so that's made it harder and harder. And then she decided that she didn't want to make that commute. And also um, her work required her to travel all over the state of Tennessee just for short trips, a night or two. And she didn't want to be away from her son. So just oh, she sure. quit working for a while and, um, and kind of got a little bit bored with it. So now she's been working for herself some. And she's also, it's kind of interesting uh, being involved in this part of it because she also does some temp work. That's kind of what they call the gig economy. You know how oh, yes. right, uh, right, right, people, right. you know, the, you know, the idea is that, that work, people won't work for a company in the future, uh, that, that they'll, they'll do a little bit of work for this company, a little bit of work for that company. So somebody might drive an Uber for a little while and then they'll go do, you know, they might do that today or they might do it on the weekend and then the, then they, they have a, a little bit of work from this company and a little bit of work from that company. Which those, so this is this temporary work. They need an attorney to go to court, like these credit card companies. They may not have a, um, a, a lawyer on staff, so they'll, they kind of put it out for bid. And then people say, okay, I'll, mm. and people, and basically you have to kind of submit and say, okay, I'll do it for this. Or if they can't, they'll, they'll try to get it relatively low. And they, if uh, they can't get anyone, my wife will say, well, I'll do it for this. You know, so it's kind mm. of a negotiation. Uh, sure. So it's kind of been kind of interesting. It's not the um, probably not our favorite work just because of the the hassles of going back and forth and they add things on at the last minute and oh, things sure. get canceled. So, but um, but she does some of that. So yeah, she does a she's an attorney. She uh, so her office we both work from home now, and um, so that's a little bit a little bit interesting. And um, the good thing is we get to most days we get to have lunch together. So mm, that's nice. And. Um, so, uh, so, and she doesn't travel for work anymore. I haven't, uh, I used to travel for work all the time. I haven't traveled for work in five months. Uh, so, but managed to get, continue to keep work and get, get work. So, uh, 
So that's that's uh, that's been the the good part. Yeah, yeah, I I I would travel for work frequently too, and uh, that's all down down for the the count for the right now. So uh, yeah, it's interesting trying to come out of the uh, the uh, the gig economy. And when you're talking about Uber, that was that was kind of interesting to me from the standpoint that you know we've 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 here in our place we've been studying Uber a little bit, and it seems to me that I mean Uber has been around for eleven years now. And I know they're trying to take over their ride hailing business. So I, I, maybe their business model was to put all the cabs out of business. But in my view, they haven't been charging enough. I mean, we already see the cabbies had been getting higher fares in, in part due to regulations. But as the Uber people and then the Lyft people started to compete against each other and try to drop the prices to get more ridership, of course, the the margins to the drivers went down, as we as you probably know. But the margins to the companies have gone down. So Uber, eleven years out, uh, lost eight billion dollars last year, and wow. uh, you got to wonder how they're going to do with fewer rides being hailed right now. That's that's going to be. Uh, I mean, this is kind of what we do in our little shop over here, is we do what we call value analysis, and and. Why you could always charge less than what the product's worth, and and uh, maybe command more sales by doing that. If you charge less than something's worth, the chance of you making a profit falls by the uh, amount that you're undercharging, and I mean, we're seeing that with Uber. See, so the results that we saw from up to last year when they were losing money, that was all effectively COVID pre-COVID in the United States, they were still losing money, over $8 billion. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting thing trying to figure out when you're, you've got a gig economy, what, well, what's the gig, what should the gig look like? And, you know, the tendency might be to bid down as, as low as you could go to, to keep something going, but then, then you don't make any money. And right. that's the hassle. So, like, your, your, your wife gets in a hassle for trying to work out the bids and you know we our, our company effectively does gigs too we work for much larger firms bid on jobs and things like that if you if you go too low you can't keep the lights on you know that's the uh that's a big issue there so um right so yeah i i i it, it's it's kind of hard for me to figure out what to do at a certain point like that if you're a if you're if you're part of the gig economy i mean speaking of gigs i mean the musicians out here i've only heard of all the places we go to eat there's only one place that's had any kind of live music and that's one person singing in the corner uh, no bands no kind of uh concerts or anything like that you don't have that out there right now do you christian uh well so the the, the yeah what's one of the problems we have here is the governor refuses to close the bars so there's got to be oh boy uh, yeah, so you you see every weekend you see, but they, they they do have a curfew now, and so they shut down at I forget the exact time it's ten or eleven o'clock at night. But um, but you know there's there's this just you know in downtown Nashville and what they call Broadway, there's just just one honky tonk or bar after another, and there's live music in every one of them, and people just kind of you know they, they go from place to place and listen to different different musicians, 
you know, and uh, so they refuse to shut those down. Um, and so, yeah, so there's every Sunday, I see pictures on social media of all these people there. There was some sort of um, big party in that. And I think people are supposed to wear a mask, but I guess in these bars, people are not wearing masks. And um, so it's uh, been pretty bad. And then there was some kind of big party that was uh, on social media um, where people were not social distancing. They're not wearing masks at some, some, uh, some large party that, that someone had hosted. So, uh, so yeah, that is, that is a continuing problem here. The, the governor is not um, taking things very seriously. I mean, the, he basically enacted an order saying that local mayors could enact mass mandates, but um, it's, uh, and then the, the, the enforcement is kind of hit or miss. We, we don't go inside grocery stores. We basically, mm-hmm. we do everything online. Uh, we, we ordered online and then we, you know, through Walmart and basically drive our car up to Walmart and they put the groceries in. So there's no yeah. real contact. We don't have to go inside the store. So we, we rarely go inside stores. But I am seeing, you know, I'm hearing about like people going to a local Kroger here, it's the local grocery store chain, mm-hmm. and um, it's fairly common in the eastern United States. And um, you know, one guy said, I say he was wearing his mask, but you know, 80% of the people in there were not wearing masks. So, oh, um, so it's kind of bad. Yeah, I mean, if you, the good thing is, if you do have to go into a Walmart uh, or a Target, uh, they do require you to wear a mask to get inside. But I guess Kroger is not enforcing it. Um, so that's another issue is that the enforcement is, is, um, kind of spotty as well. So that doesn't help. That's, that's, that's too unfortunate. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So speaking of, um, of, uh, restaurant math, you know, in, in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, ah. uh, Douglas Adams, you know, when you, when you go to a restaurant with friends and you're trying to split up the bill, he called that <laughs> bistro, bistro math. And he, he described <laughs> it in his book, uh, in the series, as uh, it was the most advanced form of mathematics in the universe. So, cause it's always <laughs> difficult, you know, how to, you know, how do you split it up and then how do you do the tip and how does it all work? So um, that gets into the, the 42 you were talking about earlier, you know, that's the, yes, the right. answer to everything. Right. And then the, you, you can get the answer, but then you have to figure out what the question is. And it took, you know, what did it take to come up with the answer? Christian, you remember that, he basically, right? They basically built a planet, uh, a, a computer the size of a planet <laughs> to, uh, to come up with the answer. And then they asked, well, what, and, and he, the answer was 42. And they said, well, well, that doesn't tell us anything. What's, what's the, what's 42 the, the answer to? So, oh, well, you have to build another computer that will tell you what the question is that 42 <laughs> is the answer to. So, um, so, so then they start, then they proceed just to build another large uh, planet sized computer to, uh, to calculate the question. Yeah, I, I, you got to love Doug Adams. That's good stuff. Um, you know, the, 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 the whole COVID thing, you know, circling back to that a little bit, it, it occurs to me that because I, I read uh, Christian has a, has a blog he puts out, and um, there, there have been effective experiments run worldwide here by both ends of the spectrum. The, the spectrum being that you've got one area that's, not infected where you can introduce an infected person. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum would be that you've got infected people interacting with non-infected people. So in Korea, there was a story, this came, this is from two or three months ago. Korea knocked down the the, uh, COVID pretty well until one young guy who was infected started to go out to bars after they opened up the bars 
and he got uh, 100 people infected over the course of a weekend. And then you told the tale, Christian, about the uh, a, a salon that uh, effectively ran an experiment, right? Yeah, so I, and I posted something about this on my, uh, my blog, uh, Christian B, B as in boy, smart. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so the, the, there were two hairdressers that later turned out to be COVID positive, but they were working in a hair salon where they were wearing masks and all the customers were wearing masks. And um, they, um, they, between the two of them, they treated about 140 people while they, while they were, you know, they, they believed it to have been infected. And um, none of the people that they came in contact with at work got the virus. So that, that's a, in the case of very high probability that masks are effective at preventing the spread of the virus, which other studies have, you know, since shown that they think that, that COVID is uh, transmitted through um, respiratory droplets, you know, it's aerosol transmission. So uh, that's, that's uh, kind of in line with that. So, so that's in the case that you know, if you do some basic probability calculations, you know, they're, they're at least 95% effective, you know, in any one encounter that you come across someone sure. with COVID, you wear a mask, they wear a mask, there's at least a 95% chance that, that, you know, you're not going to transmit COVID. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's very encouraging for, for wearing masks. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, with, with mask wearing, it can definitely help. You know, I recently also read about, um, there was the town of, uh, I guess it's pronounced, uh, it's spelled J-E-N-A. It's a town in Germany. I guess that would be pronounced Jena, Jena, Jena. The J uh, in Germany is pronounced uh, yeah. the, the Y, isn't it? So like a Jena. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like um, so. They introduced a mandatory mask requirement on April 6th, much earlier wow. than the rest of Germany. So it's good, another good test case. And uh, they basically flattened out the spread of COVID. You know, after they like within a week after issuing the mask mandate, they, they saw very little increase in COVID cases compared to the rest of Germany, which, you know, had, had endured a very difficult lockdown and to, uh, to kind of tempen things out. So they, they, it was also proved to be very successful. So it's two, you know, and also shows that, you know, if you're going to do masks, the earlier you do it, the better, right? Because well, sure. one of the things people, another thing people have, you know, they have, people have a hard time, relating to consequence, especially outsized consequences. Um, the other thing people have their head, have to wrap their heads around is things that are multiplicative, right? This oh, sure. pandemics are a multiplicative risk. So the more people that are infected, the more people that they can then infect. So it's a multiplicative type phenomenon. So the sooner that you start controlling the growth, the better, right? So if, you know, if we've had a hundred, over 150,000 deaths in the U.S. due to COVID, if we had University started wearing, you know, of course, hindsight's always 2020, but if we had universally mm -hmm. started wearing masks, you know, fairly early on, we could have cut out 99% of those deaths, you know, probably. So, um, yeah, it's a, you know, even if we started doing it in June, it would have helped because, you know, if you look at states like uh, Virginia, which mm -hmm. issued a mask mandate um, before June, uh, they only had a 6% increase in deaths from June to July due to COVID. So, um, yeah, yeah. So the last I last I saw when they did deaths per per capita that we were we the United States were number four on the list. We're not doing very well. Out of we're very high on the list. The uh, you know if you look at a, uh, the the only other um, country that's higher than us that's what I you know typically think of as a the developed country you know first what you call first world country mm -hmm. is England. They've had a pretty high mortality rate. 
due to COVID. Um, you know, and, but then the other states are all um, what we call developing countries, where you would think that they, they probably would have more deaths just because they're not as wealthy and they don't have as much advanced health care, you know, states like Peru and Bolivia. But um, yeah, you would think that we would, we would not be classified with those states, you know, um, unfortunately, you know, because we, we should have, uh, you know, first class health care and uh, prevention and be able to have the wherewithal to every never should be able to get a mask and sure. do preventative things. But um, yes, it's been very unfortunate that the U.S. has done so poorly. Yeah, now that I think, you know, you and I had looked at this before, I think vitamin D had come up as a indicator if your levels were low. And then also they're, now they're thinking that we haven't, I haven't plotted this yet. Maybe you've taken a stab at it, but obesity seems to be uh, tied. Not, not, a, not at the statewide level. Now, that, of course, I need to update this. When I, I looked at this back in uh, June, I think, through mm-hmm. deaths through May, but at the time, you know, and, and it started in New York and kind of made its way right. southward. And then I guess there was also outbreak out west in Washington State. And I guess Washington then went down to California. But um, uh, on a statewide basis, uh, the, the, the sun, you know, the states with more sunshine had lower rates of death. Right. Uh, that was very strongly correlated with lesser deaths. Uh, but um, but, you know, the states like the South, which are also more obese um, and have high rates of diabetes, that kind of thing, that was not, that was not uh, positively correlated with deaths. I know that people that have health risks are more likely to, um, you know, uh, experience uh, complications and death uh, due to COVID. But, um, but that, that was, I did not see that in the statewide at that time. I need to, I need to update that. I did that for all 50 states and I found a, a uh, regression model that's playing you know, 85 or 90 percent of the wow. deaths by state. You know, it's, it was uh, things like you know another another uh, big impact um, mm-hmm. uh, was you know um, basically high rises. You know, it, which I measured oh, yeah. you know, used Very a proxy strange. for that, which was like the tallest building in each state. So, right. you know, states that have tall buildings tend to have more high rise occupancies. They both both living you know, residences and also offices, because sure. as a airborne, uh, you know, as a, as a virus that's transmitted through the air, um, you know, when it's kind of been found that, you know, the, this ventilation, you know, has a lot to do with the transmission. So if you live in a high rise, you're likely getting these, these uh, droplets that have the virus in it from, from, it could be from several floors right. away, who knows, but right. uh so whereas you don't have that, then you, you've got, you got less exposure. So, um, so I did, I, that was something that, that was uh, co- correlated. Also the number of um, the number of citizens, the, the, you know, the number of U S born citizens um, as a percent of the state residents was negatively correlated with deaths. Um, really? That, that could be because, yeah, that could be because, you know, people that are not citizens are, they're working in environments where they're oh. not able to social distance, like meatpacking plants, that sort of thing. Sure. So, right. uh, you know, one of the things they did find though, with, with those instances where people work in close proximity and they can't social distance, that wearing masks, um, um, you know, not only prevent, not only help prevent the spread, but it also helped prevent the severity of the disease because um, if you're wearing a mask, even if you get some amount of viral load, you're getting a lower viral load. It blocks some of sure. it. 
and the, the lower viral load helps your body, you know, allows your body to fight it off faster. So, uh, you know, there's another study that's been done that uh, well, people... Can I stop you there for a second, Christian? I want sure, to sure. point out something that you just did that yeah. very cleverly did that might, might have been lost on our listeners. Um, sure. when, when Christian said he's, he's using U.S. citizens versus non-U.S. citizens, and he's talking about the people that are non-U.S. citizens maybe in jobs that are you know, where people are in more in closer proximity to each other. What he really liked to test is if people were in closer proximity with each other, but he doesn't have that data. Nobody does. I mean, it, you can't separate that data out. So what he's using there is you've got a proxy for closeness. That's how you see it, right, Christian? It's a proxy. Yeah, so if you can't model something directly, you know, that you want, if you can find something else that you can get access to, um, that would effectively stand in for it and, and be highly correlated with it. You can use that as a, a different, you know, use that in its place. So that's a, um, you know, one a way to uh, model things statistically that are difficult to measure is try to find something that's similar. You know, we do the same thing all the time in our industry with, with weight, right? I mean, it's not, oh, yeah, that, right. uh, you don't, you, you know, it's not like you go to the grocery store and you buy, uh, you know, you go to the grocery store and you buy bananas by the pound, but you know, we all we we often model things like aircraft and satellites by weight. Well, it's not like you go to Lockheed and you say, "I want to buy X pounds of satellite," and they tell you how much right. it's going to cost. You know, it's but but weight is a proxy for the scope of the project, and that's something right. that you know early you know early on, right? So um, right, yeah. So I was trying to, um, I was trying to model demand for railroad railway travel and. Um, what I discovered was when I was trying to model the demand for say taxi cab uh, rides, taxi cab rides in, in New York city, they are actually all registered. And you can find that data very easily, uh, how long the rides were and um, how many people were in each cab. And you can get a very, very nice and precise histograms that would have up to 10 million records per month in New York city. And that, that's all, real data but suppose you wanted to find the the number of people in different classes of railway cars going back and forth say in in japan or taking the channel train um i couldn't find either the firms that run those outfits posting their their number of riders by class but what you can find is if you go and see how the trains are constructed i mean that's to say they've got a certain number of cars though cars are almost all the identical, except maybe they may have a front and back car that's got a place for somebody to navigate. The The cars have a certain number of uh, seats in them that are broken into different classes. And if you add up the number of seats in the by class, it turns out you can do this for the channel train. Again, that runs from Paris to London, the channel train. And you compare that to stuff with Tokyo, and you, you work out seats versus dollars, and it works out that you can have a proxy for demand using the seats and the uh, available seats and the number of dollars. So what we're getting at here is that Christian is, has some very clever techniques for trying to get around the lack of data that you have by using things that you do have. That's, that's one of the problems that's uh, part and parcel of what our industry is, right, Christian? I mean, you, you work with what you can get, not what you want to have, right? Yes, yeah, so the, you know, the old joke about statisticians is, uh, you know, a statistician 
um, loses his keys in a, in a parking lot at night and he's looking for his keys under the street lamp and someone comes up to me and says what's <laughs> going on he says well, I lost my uh, I lost my keys and he said oh well let me help you did, did you lose them over here he said no I, left, I lost them over there in the dark but this is where the light is <laughs> you know so you know so you have a certain amount of data that you have the question is is it applicable or not so uh, so you know you hope hopefully the even if the even if the uh, light is is not directly you know where the keys are they're on, well, hopefully it's close enough right like George Box <laughs> a statistician famously said uh, all models are wrong but some are useful um, right so you know yeah. and then he, he he kind of further elaborated okay well there's but you, you know you kind of have to you know how wrong can it be before it stops being useful you know so you have right. To, right 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 you know, right so some people take that as a license to just do anything and um, it's been it's pretty funny there's uh there's a, uh, it was an economist, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he, he recently got uh, 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 ripped on social media for, he, he looked at, um, he wanted to look at, he wanted to look at this. He wanted to look at the correlation between um, like the impact of bars in a state mm -hmm. and how it impacted COVID. So he, he had some data on, um, this is a, a really neat uh, company that sends out this email that you can get every day mm -hmm. uh, called Statista. And they, um, they publish all these different stats and uh, these graphs. Mm -hmm. So they, they published something about number of binge, binge, binge drinkers in each state. And so he mm. looked at that, he looked at deaths and you know, the number of, and he looked at it as a percentage of the population's binge drinkers. Well, right. it doesn't vary that much. And um, so he posted it and, and he said, Oh, well, you know, this is the impact. You can see that there are more deaths in states that have more binge drinkers and, I was like, you know, what was interesting to me from that data was that, you know, it's like every state had at least 10% binge drinkers. I'm like, wow, there's a, there's a lot of binge drinkers out there. You know, that was the thing that jumped out at me. But there was, but his regression line was almost flat. So that was basically oh, like there was yeah. almost no correlation. So I thought, I, was, sure. I wanted to, so I contacted him asking him like, what data, where'd you get the data? So he told me, and so I, he mentioned statistics. So I thought, oh, I, I, I get that. Um, I, I get emails from them, so. I went and looked that up and um, and I downloaded the data and then looked at the COVID deaths and it was an, an R square of less than 1%. So oh people that don't familiar, yeah. So <laughs> people are familiar with that. That's basically that, you know, the R square is the coefficient of termination, you know, Doug, you know, you know this, but for right. readers that don't know, uh, basically R squared measures what percent of the variation is explained by your model. So when you have an right. R square that's 0.6%, it means that less than 1% of the variation is being explained by the model. So, um, and that's basically this just statistical noise. So I looked at the P value, which is a you know, measure of, you know, how significant is it? It was like, right. like point, I think like 0.9 or something, 0. 0.75. <laughs> so the reason basically I'm giggling it was just, people it, it was, is it's supposed it, to be less than 0 0.05, right? Christian, that's the usual. Right. It's supposed to be 0. 0. 0.05. And even if it's, even if it's less than 0.5, I mean, there, be, there might be some small evidence that would be going in the right direction, but wow. this is going in the opposite direction, right? It's going, it's telling you sure. it's much more likely to just be random noise than anything. So right. exactly. I, um, and I thought that was an interesting idea, but, uh, and this, yeah, what's interesting, this is a uh, economist that's like a tenured professor at, uh, I think it's UC Irvine. Wow. And uh, I was really surprised to, uh, to uh, see him put that out there, you know, and he'd uh, written books. Um, so I was really, uh, oh my shock and he, he kept defending it but he um people that uh 
are uh, pretty savvy with statistics. We're continuing to make fun of him for a while, but um, he, uh, yes, yeah, so that, and, and he posted a couple other graphs like that, that were, that were really pretty bad. I mean, not, maybe not quite as bad as that one, but, um, but they were, they were pretty bad, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's just random noise. You, you know, he, it had a slightly right. positive trend line. So it, 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 it kind of confirmed his bias, you know, which, uh, which he, he had this initial hypothesis and then he just tried sure. to torture the facts to get it out. You know, I tried to look at that, uh, as a, as a, as a, uh, predictor of COVID deaths. And I, um, you know, I really couldn't, I really couldn't find anything in that regard because I would think that I think bars is one place you can't social distance. If you're going to go to a bar and have a drink, it's kind of hard to wear a mask. So, right. uh, you're not going to be wearing masks when you're in there. Um, so that I think that is a likely place for the the spread of it. That's just sure. the, the data don't really support it, you know. So um, so yeah. Well, it's interesting to to know what percentage of binge drinkers binge in bars versus binging at home. If you're a binge drinker at home, you know, yes, yes. What is you well, know, you know. Well, I looked at you know you can actually find the number of bars per state. So I kind of looked at that. Right. And I looked at number of bars per capita, and uh -huh. I really couldn't find anything that really correlated with uh with covid deaths but um um i mean i do think that is a, a possible cause of transmission but uh oh sure um wisconsin i think has a lot of bars by the way oh it does yeah i used to live in wisconsin they they love their bars yeah they so um so but anyway so that was yeah that was interesting and another um you know a lot of people make talk about sweden you know it's you know they, they give sweden as a counterpoint mm -hmm. to a lot of uh things that have happened because, um, you know, Sweden basically didn't do a mask mandate. They didn't do a lockdown. Uh, they've had a lot of, uh, compared to their other Nordic neighbors, they've had a lot of deaths, much higher deaths per capita than say Norway, Denmark, Finland. Right. Um, but, you know, but still fewer deaths in the U S but it's really not a hard, it's not a good comparator because, um, you know, overall, Sweden is a much healthier country. And they're sparser, um, more sparsely populated, too, back to your other points, right? Right, more sparsely populated. And so that's one of the things I did find in, when I did the state-by-state the -state modeling was that um, uh, population density is a big driver. So the more mm -hmm. dense population was, the more deaths. And also, another thing that was, uh, that you think would be correlated with that, but was a good, good explanation of variance, even on top of that, is the number of miles of interstate in a state. Mm. So, you know, the more, the, the, the bigger, you know, big roads, people move around. So you think the, the more miles of interstate in a state, the more people move around in the state. So it's not only the fact that uh, the population is dense, but also people are moving around from place to place and then potentially taking it from place to place as they go. So. Well, that's interesting. Um, Was it miles of total interstate or inter miles of interstate per, per square mile of, territory no or? it was the it was the miles of interstate within a state oh, yeah interesting yeah. yeah so um which kind of helps explain why some states which are pretty pretty sparsely populated and don't have a lot right. of interstate wyoming hasn't had a huge outbreak uh sure. interestingly you know, interestingly though idaho recently has had a significant outbreak um um but uh but yeah you know, some some states like montana wyoming uh, Hawaii, I guess, uh, has never had a, a, a huge outbreak. Uh, cases have been growing there recently, but they've still never had a huge outbreak. And they're, and they're partly, they're geographically isolated from the rest of the U.S. So, 
um, that could help them a little bit. Alaska, right. um, states like that. So yeah, that, that was one of the things. But you know, the other thing that uh, you know, Sweden is also a much healthier country than the U.S. as a yeah, whole. That's right. If you look at you know, one of the things you mentioned was people that are at risk, and I've just kind of anecdotally noticed this that the people that have been hospitalized with COVID by and large, regardless of their age, they're largely been, um, they've had health issues, underlying health right, issues. Right, 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 Diabetes being one of those. Well, the rate of diabetes in the U.S. is more than twice that in Sweden. So in the uh -huh. U.S., it's between 10 and 11% of the population, which I was really surprised by that. I thought, I didn't think it was that high, but, um, but it's like between 10 and 11% wow. of the U.S. population is diabetic versus Sweden, where it's less than 5%. So between like mm -hmm. 4 and 5%. So it's not a strong comparator in, in, in many ways with the U.S. in that regard. So uh, it's even more reason for us to be cautious because of that. You know, one of our uh, our neighbors, their son um, is a graduate student studying basically data science for biology and genetic type type stuff mm -hmm. at Columbia. Right. And um, he told us fairly early on back in, because, you know, they're talking about it, it hitting older people harder. And right. And what he said that the analysis that he had done uh, at his school was that um, was that uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't age, it was health. That, ah. that it, it, it's another one of these cases where you have to be a little careful here because sure. sometimes a proxy can be misleading. You know, um, right. so just because you think okay, well, the age is highly correlated. Well, it's not really age. Age is actually a proxy for in, in what he described it as age is a proxy for health. So what sure. really is, is the death rate is higher for people that are not as healthy. So um, um, that's an excellent point. I, I think you really hammered home for the, for the listeners, um, the, the deep value that you have about trying to figure out the signal of a, of a, of a various event versus the noise relative to that event. And um, that, that is the uh, key question for most of what it is that you and I do, isn't it? The uh, trying, out to, trying to get separate the signal from the noise, right? Yes, that's, uh, that's always uh, key. It, it's uh, a little difficult because uh, there's always some noise in the data, whether through just you know, random transcription or other, and, and things are influenced by random events that we have no control over. Um, you know, if we, when I model, for example, satellite costs, and I'll go back and look at data that were that uh, were influenced by an external event like the shuttle Challenger disaster, because right. you know the shuttle used to launch a lot of satellites. Um, you know, how do you account for that? Because you know we don't have a space shuttle anymore. You know, that's that's random noise that I don't want to actually explicitly model right sure sure so uh, you have to be careful about that because uh that's the other problem with people when they do statistical modeling they want to make the model look as good as possible so they tend to overfit to right, the data which right, right. winds up fitting some some noise in there so it's not as useful for prediction but, you know it's interesting too christian the the um the similarities between we talk signal and noise we're talking you know data science that the, the the similarities between signal and noise and say radar as opposed to data radar right. is effectively a form of data and so you can get a, a real strong signal on a real large object that's 
coming at you with a good radar. You can get a lot of signal, very little noise, but if somebody were to drop a whole bunch of aluminum strips out the back, well, then that's going to create a radar reflection too. They call that chaff, and they've been doing that since World War II. And that, that creates noise. So sometimes in warfare, you deliberately create noise to create diversions. And, you know, we haven't, you know, I think in information science now, Christian, um, the, the noise becomes the, the, the people that are trying to pollute data sets and things like that. Maybe that would be a good thing for us to talk about next time, you know? Maybe so. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. So, uh, yep, that would be good. Okay. And I will, uh, I will uh, also just add one personal note. Um, you know, uh, my wife and I wear masks whenever we go out, we have several different masks and mm -hmm. I know you and your wife do too, but right. I'm having trouble getting my son to wear a mask. He does oh. not want any part of it. So, uh, can't get them interested in potty training or the masks. Uh, and we even, uh, we even have, uh, when he comes home in the evening, um, he want to watch, he, he wants to watch TV. We're like, okay, put your mask on. Ah. And he would rather not watch TV than put a mask on. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. And he's yeah. what, two or th three or four? He's two, two and a half. He's like two years and about yeah. two, two years and seven months like that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a young age. So yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't—he doesn't want any part of it. So, <laughs> yeah, I—it's it, funny. I go to a doctor's office all the time, and there's there's one person there, this this lady that always greets me there, and I, I would always tease her frequently because she would change her her hairstyles around, you know, all the time. So, uh, so I came and saw her yesterday, and so instead of saying I love what you've done with your hair, I said, well, I love what you've done with your face, you know, pointing to her face mask. So, oh yeah, yeah, that's so funny. Got to get out of that. Well, um, Kristen, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to try to take this up to the, um, wrap this up today. We'll, next time we'll try to talk a little bit more about signal and noise. I don't know as much about this as I'd like to. So this is when we, we kind of randomly roam onto a topic like this, that's, this becomes kind of a point of interest for people like Christian and me to go out and try to make some sense of that. So, um, Next time we'll talk about that and um, we'll let you in on the conversation. So thank you again from me, Christian, you wanna say thanks again? Goodbye. Oh yeah, thanks for everyone. Thanks everyone. Um, you know, if you um, are interested in, in learning a bit more at risk, uh, check out my book on Amazon, Solving for Project Risk Management, coming out this November. And uh, also I have a blog, uh, Christian B is in boy, smart.com. So, um, if you're interested in seeing, seeing what else I've written about or analyzed, check, 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 check that out. Very good. Thanks, Christian. All right. Thanks, Doug. Smart Remarks, Howard States. is brought to you by Me, Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You can follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at 
at me4D, and you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard. <laughs>